Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is part two of a three-part interview with Brian D. Palmer about the emergence of Trotskyism in the United States. As we move further into the Depression, political militancy and labor action would naturally increase, forcing a response from the FDR administration in the form of a number of programs under the New Deal umbrella. Could you tell us the effect of these programs uh, that they had on both the material conditions and political consciousness of the American public. What was the political context the CLA found themselves working in during the 1933 and 34 years? Yeah, with with Roosevelt's election in 1933, you had uh, uh, two things happening. One, there was a slight upturn uh, in the economy, um, uh, sort of lifting in some senses, uh, the sort of worst, uh, um, you know, the worst economic conditions uh, of, of the Great Depression. Uh, and that upturn in the economy allowed for worker mobilizations to begin to sort of kick in. Um, so there was new, there was, whereas strike activity had pretty much ground to a halt in the, uh, you know, 30, 31, 32 years, it began to pick up in 33 and especially in 34. Um, and with Roosevelt's election in 33, you also began to get a more kind of uh, liberal Keynesian kind of approach to the Depression, rather than that which had been followed by Republican administrations of essentially, you know, grounding things down. Uh, so Roosevelt began, you know, a public works administration, administration projects. Um, he began to uh, uh, toy with, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, labor uh, legislation that actually, uh, at least rhetorically, uh, gave some semblance of uh, encouragement to the formation of trade unions. Um, although this was always very, very limited and far more limited than I think many historians have been lately trying to stress, uh, you know, was was part of the, the, the New Deal agenda. Um, but uh, Roosevelt, uh, but the rhetoric of, you know, the president wants you to join a union did actually uh, resonate across uh, this sort of spectrum of, 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 of working class communities in the, in, in the mid-1930s. Um, and with this as well, uh, the Communist Party by 1934 and most emphatically by 1935 uh, shifted gears dramatically away, and we'll talk about this later, but away from its more sectarian uh, kind of adventurous stand of the third period into a period of the popular front where it it basically gave support to, quote, progressive bourgeois elements. Um, uh, and so the Communist Party became in some senses a, a, a prop for uh, Roosevelt. Um, all of this uh, um, unleashed in some senses a pent up working class desire uh, and need uh, for uh, active interventions and uh, strike activity, 
mobilizing campaigns. Um, and it co corresponded as well with, a, again, which we'll talk about, with a rising, uh, with the rising uh, um, political mobilization against war uh, and in favor of, uh, um, you know, unemployment movements, in favor of trade unions, etc. Um, so this was uh, um, a context in which uh, Cannon, uh, in America, Trotsky internationally began uh, the, the whole process of turning more outward into, a, into, into, into mass struggles. Um, and uh, as well, however, it meant that the Trotskyists uh, um, were constantly confronting um, the uh, limitations uh, and constraints of Roosevelt's uh, labor legislation and labor administration. Uh, Roosevelt uh, often, for instance, uh, wanted to uh, um, uh, put forward a, a view that, you know, his uh, administration was in favor of trade unions, but they were also <laughs> always in favor of company unions being formed, if that was, you know, what uh, workers would gravitate towards and what companies would encourage. Uh, Roosevelt wanted mediators to settle disputes uh, and always in ways that, you know, gave as much to capital as they gave to labor. Um, so the real struggles were on the ground. There were mass mobilizations of uh, um, uh, workers in the American uh, Southern textile industry in 1933-34, mass upheavals of, of, of strikes uh, in various sectors, including Longshore in San Francisco, truckers in Minneapolis, uh, and auto parts workers in Toledo. Uh, and these were the forerunners of the uh, mass production unionist struggles of the, of the later 1930s uh, in the CIO. And uh, the task uh, was really uh, um, how to organize uh, the unorganized, how to uh, build uh, the craft unions of the AFL into something uh, far more approaching industrial unions. Um, and so that's the kind of context in which there was a labor revival in 33-34, which Trotskyists and other left-wing uh, uh, movements and groups uh, played a decisive role in. Yeah, this leads right into my next question. Um, one area that proved incredibly complicated was the question of how to orient to the mass work, a debate that was in many ways kind of haunted by the attempts we discussed in our last conversation uh, about John Pepper uh, and his attempt to form a farmer labor party. The debates over how to orient towards mass work would leave an embattled canon arguing for some time in isolation on the possibility of a new mass workers party, although as the 30s rolled on, the debate started to move more in his favor. Could you tell us about some of these discussions? Well, uh, you know, the interesting point was, is that as Roosevelt uh, um, uh, pushed, uh, you know, the, the sort of rhetorical commitment to labor, um, there were, you know, there were still many, many militant workers and many in the trade union movement who essentially refused to believe uh, after decades of experiencing the Democratic Party 
that you know that there was in either the Republican or, Demo- or Democratic parties any real firm commitment to uh, um, to labor. So there was still uh, a, uh, um, a, a, a a residue or. Uh, that's the wrong word. Uh, there was still an attraction to the no, to the possibility of an independent labor party. Um, this had been poisoned in the uh, communist experience in the 1920s by Pepper's, uh, you know, uh, cross class commitment to a farmer labor party that obliterated the uh, independence of uh, sort of working class uh, political action. Um, and Shackman and many of the uh, 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 his those aligned with him within the factionalism of the early 1930s had pretty much convinced Trotsky uh, that a labor party in the United States was a dead end from the beginning. Um, and uh, Cannon uh, was in a very difficult position because he knew full well that what Pepper had done in the 1920s had led the uh, American Communist Party, you know, basically astray on the question of a labor party. But he always thought that the potential for a labor party still uh, demanded uh, consideration on the part of revolutionaries. And so as a, a, a labor party, labor party initiatives began to emerge again, uh, not from the from necessarily from the Communist Party, but from others uh, uh, in, 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 the, in the reform spectrum. Uh, Cannon, you know, in some senses tried to rebuild the sort of bridge back to a revolutionary approach to the Labor Party. Uh, it wasn't really uh, um, uh, uh, something that, and Trotsky had to be convinced, he had to have his, in some senses, he had, he had to have it demonstrated to him. Uh, the difficulty was that the Labor Party, uh, as it began to be pushed and promoted in certain trade union circles in the mid-1930s, uh, was always uh, sort of, by this point, because of communist problems in, in approaching it, and because Trotskyists eschewed involvement in, in, you know, in Labor Party debates for the, for the early to mid-30s. The problem was is that it was entirely... Uh, really a franchise of an element of the trade union bureaucracy, a liberal element of the trade union bureaucracy. And as it grew and attracted workers who could not vote Democrat or Republican, it became in some senses a prop of those uh, liberal trade union leaders to be used to shore up, in some senses, Roosevelt. Uh, it, It was orienting towards uh, winning votes away from uh, Republicans, but keeping the Democrats and Roosevelt in power. Uh, And so in some senses, the debate that Cannon would have liked to have seen around a revolutionary perspective and and the involvement of Trotskyists in a labor party was in in some senses stillborn. And by the late 1930s, what was left of the labor party uh, um, perspective was firmly in the hands of, you know, people like Sidney Hillman and David Dubinsky, who were liberal uh, reform trade union leaders uh, um, in, 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 in the American uh, workers' movement. Um, so it, the Labor Party uh, 
uh, issue was in some senses linked to uh, the sort of, uh, um, how should I put it, uh, the, the, the problems with uh, shoring up Roosevelt over the course of the 1930s. Race was another contentious issue for the American left, with a variety of perspectives appearing on how to understand and orient to black workers. Before diving straight into the CLA's own take at the time, I think understanding their stance requires some understanding of the debate as it appeared at the time around questions of black self-determination, as well as the idea of a black belt nation. Could you cue us into how American leftists understood the racial question at this time? Yeah, the race question was, was of course, central to uh, uh, issues of class struggle and to revolutionary politics in the United States. And the old Socialist Party, uh, even under leaders as uh, good as Eugene Debs, had a very, uh, um, I, I think, uh, a problematic approach to uh, um to race in the United States. And Debs himself said that, you know, the race question is purely and simply a class question and we have nothing more to offer, uh, you know, black workers than, to, than basically to join with us and, and struggle against capitalism. Uh, and that clearly was uh, uh, insufficient. The common turn under uh, Lenin's leadership uh, in the early uh, 1920s did in fact uh, force the question of confronting race uh, more uh, uh, um, more uh, rigorously uh, into the the American communist movement, and it was it was the Comintern in its healthiest days of the early nineteen twenties that actually put race on the agenda of uh, uh, the communist movement uh, in the United States and pushed this. Now, with Stalin, Stalin's influence rising in the late 1920s, um, the uh, orientation of the Communist International shifted away from the whole question of black self-determination, which had been the Leninist approach to the to the to, to the uh, to the to the question of uh, of, of where race sit, sat in, a, in 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 the American. Um, uh, um, situation. So, and it, it moved into a, 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 a different but related approach. Stalin pushed the notion of, and the common communist international adopted this at its 1928 Congress and black uh, American communists like Harry Haywood embraced it. Uh, the, the, the notion of a black belt nation, and, and they took, in other words, they took the argument that blacks uh, needed to be uh, addressed in ways that encouraged uh, their revolutionary uh, potential through, uh, you know, recognizing their right to self-determination. Uh, this became, was pushed in a more concrete direction in the notion of a black belt nation thesis. The black belt nation thesis uh, held that the, the cotton belt in the American South was an area where blacks uh, historically had the largest concentration of their population, uh, and that this could form a nation, uh, um, and that uh, uh, 
communists needed to support the formation of this black belt nation in the American South. The problem was that most American blacks did not consider themselves a nation and they did not want to be part of a nation that was rooted in the American South that had been historically uh, their most, uh, their, the, the, that had been their geographical locale of, oppre- of oppression uh, and chattel slavery. Um, and most, many blacks were moving from the American South uh, to the American North uh, in search of uh, industrial jobs and were active in uh, the trade unions in, 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 the, in the mass production industries. Um, so the Black Belt Nation thesis, which was not a particularly uh, you know, Marxist approach, uh, tended to uh, have this kind of almost otherworldly uh, significance. It did stress to uh, American communists and to the American public that race was a central issue. But uh, what the Trotskyists tried to do was push uh, this uh, understanding of the Black Belt Nation, which Cannon, Shackman, and all of the early Trotskyists accepted uh, in the late 1920s, to push that to the side and accent uh, the whole question of uh, um, the struggle for revolutionary equality, the struggle to integrate, uh, you know, unions, uh, to uh, lead struggles against uh, racism, uh, like the campaign to free the Scottsboro Boys from their sort of judicial lynching uh, in 1934, Um, and to push the notion that uh, the struggle that blacks wanted to be involved in, and that would be draw them into the revolutionary movement, was in fact a forceful, uh, unambiguous, uh, and resolute stand around uh, equality. Yeah, you have a relatively long section on a series of strikes among hotel and restaurant workers in 1934. And a key player for y- in this for you is one B.J. Field, someone who spent several years navigating various social struggles before ending up in the CLA and playing a central role among these service workers. Although this series of strikes would end with few gains for the workers and Field being expelled from the CLA. Could you tell us about what happened here and Field's role in it all? Well, Field was was a bit like Wiseboard. Um, He was a very talented economist who uh, traveled to uh, Europe to see Trotsky, gained uh, a great deal of uh, credibility uh, with Trotsky, uh, who appreciated his understanding, particularly the economics of the oil industry uh, in the the 1930s, uh, and thought that uh, Field had a, a... a fundamentally important role to play uh, in the Trotskyist movement. Uh, Field was in and out of the Communist League of America in the early 30s, uh, and but uh, um, you know managed through uh, you know Trotsky's uh, having won over Trotsky to uh, that he he would he would get back in. He he was uh, he was expelled once. Um, 
Cannon and company uh, allowed him back in. Uh, he wrote a number of articles for the for the for the paper, the the, the militant in this period, um, and he was uh, um, he was a fast talker, uh, glib, very quick on his feet, uh, and had uh, a, a number of talents. But again, like Weisbord, he was essentially unassimilable. Uh, he could not be assimilated to the to the program and to the politics of Trotskyism. Now, what happened? He spoke a number of languages, and in 1933-34, the New York uh, hotel industry was in the throes of a series of strikes, um, and the field who became involved in this through the auspices of the Communist League of America, uh, managed to uh, draw the um, uh, uh, support of a powerful contingent of French chefs uh, in the New York hotel and restaurant sector. Um, they loved the fact that he spoke French with them, um, and he became their Napoleon. Uh, he occupied, an, you know, a, a place in this strike that happened almost, you know, uh, overnight. He quickly rose up the ladder of uh, uh, um, uh, the union, and he became a leader in the strike. Um, as he became a leader, like Weisbord, he tended to see himself, as opposed to the Communist League of America, of which he was a part, as the leading figure. Uh, he was essentially incapable of following um, uh, the direction or guidance of the Communist League of America. Cannon, uh, one of his hand-picked organizers, Hugo Oler and others, played decisive roles in the strike as well. But it was Field who was front and center. And he broke from, uh, you know, uh, the Communist League of America, basically as the strike was, uh, you know, moving forward. Um, he led it in uh, the entirely wrong direction. He enjoyed hobnobbing and trying to create uh, possibilities of settlement of the strike with mediators from uh, um, Roosevelt's uh, um, labor administration, something that Cannon and the, the CLA warned him against decisively. Um, and in the, in the end, the strike, which was a very complicated uh, sort of mix of different unions and in which different uh, leftist uh, forces were playing roles. Um, in the end, Field uh, led the strike uh, down a kind of garden path of defeat. Uh, he was expelled uh, from the Communist League of America. Uh, and in fact, the workers in the industry repudiated him and basically uh, gave him the heave ho. Uh, after that, uh, he tried, like Weisbord, to form his own revolutionary group, but even that group ended up expelling him fairly shortly afterwards. Uh, and uh, he retreated to California, where I think he ended his days in the sort of real estate market and outside of uh, the revolutionary left entirely. So like Weisbord, he was, uh, uh, you know, a uh, uh, a person who emerged in the context of the 1930s, one with talents. He was drawn to the revolutionary movement, but he could not in the end uh, assimilate to it. 
uh, and once he was sort of separated and distanced from uh, the collective struggles uh, that the CLA kind of embraced, um, his days in the revolutionary left were numbered. In response to the struggles with service workers, maritime workers, unemployment organizing, and agitation for political prisoners, Cannon started to look towards work outside cliquish New York and New England. He started to believe revolutionary work would require what he called bona fide proletarians to provide firm foundations for revolutionary activity. This, combined with Stalinist failures to secure footholds with miners, had Cannon turning to Illinois, seeing an opening for the CLA to step forward. While this did result in some continuing internal debates, especially around the organizer, Jerry Allard, it was also a moment where the CLA was able to step forward. Could you tell us about Cannon's thought process for getting into the mining fields and how it played out? Well, Cannon, of course, had always uh, been attracted to mining communities as a center of working class militants. It goes back to his days in Kansas when he uh, actually had been, uh, you know, an organizer in, in, in the mining sector for the Communist Party in, in the very, you know, early 1920s. Um, so he had a kind of natural uh, draw into this uh, milieu. Um, but uh, that would be accented in the in the early to mid 1930s by the kind of dog days factionalism that we talked about earlier. Uh, Cannon increasingly saw New York as a milieu in which uh, petty bourgeois elements uh, would be drawn to the revolutionary left and would uh, um, really lacking in the kind of proletarian resolve that he saw as central uh, to revolutionary practice. They would tend to uh, be drawn into the kind of petty fact, personalized factionalism that he found so distasteful uh, in the early 1930s. So he, he, he did at one point say, uh, you know, what the movement needs is less and less of these kind of uh, um, sort of uh, gab fest oriented uh, um, uh, pseudo-intellectuals, and more and more what we need are bona fide proletarians. Now, uh, in the 1930s, well, into the late 1920s and into the 1930s, Illinois miners presented a center of kind of proletarian uh, act, you know, activity that was stepping outside of the boundaries established uh, within working class communities by both the Communist Party on the one hand and the mainstream official trade unions on the other. Uh, there was a battle in the Illinois coal fields to create a progressive miners movement that stepped outside of the control, which was very reactionary uh, in the 1920s of John L. Lewis's United Mine Workers of America, and to battle in some senses, the stranglehold of the left in the unions that the Communist Party presented. Um, Jerry Allard, who was uh, a member of the Socialist Party who gravitated towards the CLA in 1929, uh, was a figure uh, um, who was actually leading some of these struggles. And he, uh, um, again, it's a bit like the story of Weisbord and Field. Allard was uh, a, a figure who, uh, you know, grew with the revolutionary left worked in tandem with it, aligned with Trotskyists, but could not quite 
draw himself uh, into the into full participation and assimilation uh, with the party, with the with the with the with the collective uh, project of the of of the CLA. Um, the consequence was he kind of fancied himself as bigger as did Weisbord and Field than 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 the Trotskyist movement, which had brought him to the fore to some extent. And he became, as he became more and more associated with a leader of, as a leader of the miners, he became less and less uh, uh, interested in aligning with the CLA of which he was a member and stepping outside of it. Um, so Cannon and uh, the CLA nevertheless tried to build uh, um, uh, the opposition movement uh, within the uh, progressive miners movement, tried to recruit uh, people there to uh, the CLA. And they learned many valuable lessons. Uh, one of the most important lessons that Cannon uh, learned in his active involvement in the progressive uh, miners movement in, in Illinois and in working with and in struggling with Jerry Allard was the importance of a women's auxiliary, a ladies' auxiliary in a uh, job sector that was overwhelmingly gendered as masculine. Um, he saw the value that uh, the women's auxiliary uh, contributed to the miners' struggles in building resolve, in, in actually uh, walking on picket lines, in building uh, labor defense campaigns. Uh, women played a fundamental role, and they played a fundamental role in shoring up domestic economies so that they did not fall apart. Uh, during strikes and in battling with husbands and sons uh, and fathers to create a kind of community of class struggle uh, that extended, that that rested in the workplace, but extended well beyond it, you know, into homes, into neighborhoods, uh, into wider organizations. And Cannon would draw on that experience and in seeing the the, the value of these women's auxiliaries uh, in later struggles in the 1930s. In spite of the struggles the League had suffered through so far, you note at the end of this chapter that they were still managing to draw people in, both among workers as well as among dissident intellectuals who were growing increasingly wary of Stalinism and were also impressed by the Trotskyists' clear commitments to cultivating and winning class struggle and their willingness and ability to try punching above their weight. Could you tell us a bit about the increasing allure of Trotskyism at this time and the sorts of people Cannon was finding himself surrounded with? I, um, I think that, you know, a part of this was reflected as well. I don't know whether we'll be talking about this later or not. A part of this was, was, was reflected in the uh, importance that Trotskyists played in, uh, in, in, in mobilizations against war and against fascism. Uh, these were key issues in the mid-1930s, as well as the trade union issues. And uh, it drew to Cannon uh, and to the CLA uh, all kinds of people who uh, thought that these were areas that the Communist Party was not sufficiently playing a sufficient role in in the mid-1930s. Um, uh, and in fighting uh, the threat that Hitler and the rising and the rising possibility of war posed, 
Cannon and others were now out more and more in sort of mass struggles and mass mobilizations and public meetings. And uh, they were also, Cannon played a, a decisive role in a series of uh, unemployed uh, uh, agitations and in uh, the free uh, Tom Mooney campaign. The Mooney campaign was a, a campaign to free uh, Mooney, who had been uh, charged, uh, and many on the left thought railroaded uh, from for a, a sort of uh, bombing activity uh, uh, that he didn't get that he supposedly engaged in uh, during World War One, during the opposition to World War One. So in all of these areas, and increasingly as well among groups of uh, dissident intellectuals, Cannon and the Trotskyists presented an alternative pole of attraction uh, in, the, in the period of the mid-1930s to the Communist Party. Um, and uh, uh, while this didn't necessarily always result in recruits, it certainly resulted in uh, united front activities um, that, uh, um, were of vital importance to the, uh, to the growth of the Trotskyist movement and to its, in some senses, to its growing capacity to sort of raise its standard, uh, in a, in a public way. Chapter four is a lengthy look at the 1934 Minneapolis truckers strike. Um, before diving right in, though, you spent some time looking at class struggle as it was playing out across the nation at the time. Violence was not unfamiliar to strikes and picket lines with armed police often clashing with striking workers, leading to injury and even death. This was all playing out against the backdrop of frustration and disillusionment in FDR's progressive credentials among the downtrodden leading to shifts in public consciousness. Could you set the stage for us a bit in terms of how strike actions and other labor organizing was often playing out? Yeah, uh, again, it relates very much to uh, the sort of original uh, years of the Great Depression, the, the early period that saw strike activity, mobilization, activism of all sorts really grind to a halt. Um, but by 33, 34, you're starting to get major, uh, um, uh, major upturn in, in, in the class struggle. And uh, significant battles were fought within the American Federation of Labor Unions by and led by revolutionary elements. Um, one of the key battles was... Uh, the Toledo Autolite strike in 1934, which was led by uh, uh, the American Workers' Party, headed by A.J. Musty, a, 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 a pacifist uh, preacher from the World War I period who was gravitating more and more to revolutionary activity. Uh, another was led by communists and uh, communist-associated figures like Harry Bridges uh, in the longshore industry. Uh, in uh, San Francisco. And uh, the Minneapolis strike would be uh, that Cannon uh, played a decisive role in it and was led by Trotskyists in Minneapolis would be another. The, the, the strike activity of 33-34 was all, almost always uh, a, organized by workers who were potentially 
organized in the AFL unions, but who were in some senses breaking out of the old craft mentality of the AFL and embracing industrial unionism uh, and mass production unionism, drawing in all workers in a sector rather than hiving off this particular craft uh, and, and, and seeing that as the sum total of unionization struggles. And in doing that, uh, the trade union movement began to branch out from, uh, you know, its limitations as a forum for male, white, skilled workers. The struggles of this period involved often black workers, women workers, well, textile workers in the South would be a, cat, a, a case in point, black workers, ethnic workers, first generation immigrant workers, many of whom were skilled, unskilled and semi-skilled. Uh, and so the whole tenor, if you will, of the workers movement had the possibility of changing in the mid 1930s uh, as, it, as the labor movement became more inclusive and as the struggles of workers touched more and more and, and more and more different kinds uh, of workers. And in this, uh, the, the, this, the Trotskyists would uh, um, play a vital role of this in Minneapolis in 1934. Turning to Minneapolis specifically, you note that it was not a bastion of militant labor organizing in the early 30s. Between open shop policies, failures of the Communist Party to plant roots, more tentative labor leadership in the unions, and a vicious citizens alliance that promoted aggressive Red Scare politics, Cannon later recalled that Minneapolis was a tough nut to crack, although there was a crack in the edifice in the form of increasingly militant workers who were looking for a way out. Could you describe the class composition and tensions running through the city at this time? Yeah, I think that uh, what's most interesting about Minneapolis is that it it went from being a bastion of the open shop and really a a uh, um, a locale where an employers association like the Citizens Alliance was one of the most rabidly anti-union, uh, vigorously anti-communist uh, bodies uh, in the 1920s. Um, and in some senses, uh, the fact that Minneapolis labor was uh, um, uh, really, in some senses, ground down over the course of the 1920s, and then further ground down with the Depression, early Depression years, it boiled things to a point where it pushed things to a point where an immense class struggle was actually on the agenda. Um, it, you can see this as kind of the uneven development of the workers' movement in Minneapolis. It, it was on a downward slide for so long, and workers experienced such oppression, and unions were driven so far into retreat, that by 1934, you could almost sense that there was going to be an explosion that would catapult workers out of these limitations and into an entirely new uh, and in fact quite robust uh, trade union uh, possibility. So that, you know, in the space of really a couple of years, 
Minneapolis went from being known as a scab town, a bastion of the open shop, to really uh, one of the leading uh, trade union centers uh, in the Midwest. The first major action you talk about was in February 1934, and a series of cold days piled up coal orders, giving local truckers a brief window of leverage. What surprised some outsiders was the level of planning and coordination of the strike, with phone communication between strike locations, strike captains at each location, mobile pickets to move about the city. Within a couple days, the strike was over, although you argue that this strike, in spite of being a meager victory in terms of material winnings, was still significant for the lessons it imparted. Could you tell us what happened here and what the early takeaway was? Yeah, precisely because Minneapolis had been, uh, in some senses, had seen labor defeated over the course of the 1920s and early 30s, the leading Trotskyists, and there were really no more than maybe a half dozen, who were located, many of them, in the coal yards uh, of, uh, uh, and, and in the trucking sector of, 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 of Minneapolis. They had been considering the necessity of uh, organizing a breakthrough in the trucking sector since really 1928-29. They'd been about five years working on this. They had talked unionism uh, among workers uh, they had conceived of how a strike might be waged. Um, and at that point, uh, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters probably had in 1932-33 only about 150 members. It was an international union that considered itself a craft union. Very much uh, its leader, Dan Tobin, was very much part of the most in some senses, backward and reactionary uh, part of the AFL officialdom. Uh, and what uh, uh, the Trotskyists uh, envisioned was cracking open that the limitations of that AFL craft unionism and its conservatism and bringing in all the workers who worked in the in and around the trucking sector, which included market workers who hauled produce from, you know, farmers uh, and included, uh, you know, various loaders and handlers on various um, dispensing docks. So uh, they, but, but they knew that they needed the right moment uh, and they had really struggled with how to keep uh, the, the promise of trade unionism alive through the difficult days of the early depression. And they did envision that what, we, what was needed uh, in 1934 was actually a, a stand on the part of the workers that would actually put the idea of trade unionism firmly in the minds of workers and the potential of trade unionism, bring it to the fore. So they, you know, the, the, the February strike was organized with very, very few workers, but they understood probably no more than 30 or 40 workers actually voted to go on strike. And we're talking about, you know, a, an industry that had 166 or something, you know, trucking firms, some of them quite small. Um, but what they did was they planned it for February when there was a cold, when they knew there'd be a, a cold snap, when coal orders would be piling up. And in some senses, the audacity of them going out on strike 
and actually showing the workers, so many of whom didn't even know probably what was unfolding, showing the workers what was possible, being well organized, uh, having uh, you know a series of trucks that shut down the various trucking uh, you know firms. They didn't win collective bargaining rights. They didn't win recognition of the union. But what they did win was they backed the bosses down on certain condition issues, and they showed to the workers what was possible. So they waged a quick and in some senses very limited uh, uh, victory that really demonstrated only that the potential for workers' organization was there. And once that potential for workers' organization was recognized, it led to much bigger and more successful and more wide-ranging in terms of their demands and achievement strikes uh, later on in 1934. The next couple sections in the chapter uh, outline a number of tensions that were starting to simmer between an increasingly militant rank-and-file union membership of truckers in Minneapolis who were finding themselves at odds with their own leadership, be it union leaders who would drag their feet through bureaucratic measures, or populist politicians such as Dan Tobin, whose rhetoric often outpaced his actual politics. The Trotskyists in the lead-up to the summer action tried to maneuver things around so that these tensions would become more apparent, forcing at least some local leaders to siding with the workers when the time came. Could you explain these tensions and how the Trotskyists attempted to maneuver around them? Yeah, I think the the, the real strength of of the Trotskyists in Minneapolis and Cannon played a vital role in advising them at every level and in all stages. Uh, and he was often, you know, uh, you know, traveled to Minneapolis and was there on the ground. Um, the real strength of the Trotskyists, as opposed to say the communist party who had fought, who fought many strikes, uh, you know, in the, in the late 1920s and into the 1930s, the, the point about the Trotskyist leadership of the, of the Minneapolis trucker strikes was that they did, they did not proceed as though this was a revolutionary situation and the strike was a revolutionary act. They proceeded as revolutionaries in showing the workers that they could lead a class struggle that would achieve the collective bargaining rights and wage and condition issues that the workers wanted. And by doing that, they would convince workers that revolutionaries could lead workers in ways that served workers' interests. So it was a transitional, you know, the Trotskyists had more of a transitional approach to class struggle than the communists in the third period, who saw each and every strike as kind of, a, you know, a, a, a struggle to bring the revolution to fruition. What the Trotskyists had to battle, moreover, in Minneapolis was not just intransigent employers, but they also had to battle a local uh, officialdom, the police, the mayor, a political governor in uh, Minnesota, Olson, Floyd Olson, who was a former Labor Party, ad, former Labor Party uh, um, politician, and who many workers thought wrongly was on the workers' side. And they also had to battle this intransigent as well, 
trade union leadership that did not want to organize the mass of workers in, in the trucking sector and did very little to support the strike. So what the Trotskyists had to do was constantly build uh, an approach to the class struggle that educated workers about the limitations of their leadership, political and industrial, as well as show them that they could win concrete gains from employers that had been holding out on them for so long. So unlike the Communist Party, for instance, the Trotskyists did not call for overthrowing Floyd Olson as basically, you know, a reform element that was going to hold the workers back. Instead, what they did was they constantly called in him out on his pro-labor stands and exposed him and forced him to sort of, uh, you know, live up to his rhetoric up to certain limited, you know, in certain limited ways. They constantly, they worked to, in some senses, bypass Dan Tobin and his hand-picked on the ground bureaucratic leaders uh, of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and instead, you know, forced local uh, trade union and trades and labor assembly figures to back strikes, to back strike actions when the international would not. So there's always a, there was a, a constant effort on the part of Trotskyists and a constant struggle to move through, around, and beyond the limitations of the existing political and industrial leadership. And this they did with great adroitness and great effectiveness. Uh, and it basically, because they were so well organized and because in the various strikes that they conducted, particularly those uh, in the spring and summer, of 1934, because their organization was almost that of a, of a, of a, of a sort of a military campaign. They had a huge headquarters, uh, a commissary uh, staffed by the Women's Auxiliary, a hospital with a doctor and nurses set up to deal with workers who might be injured in street battles. Um, because they worked every angle with farmers associations, bringing them in to support the strike worked every angle with the trades and labor uh, uh, assembly leadership in other unions to draw them in to support the strike. Drew as well, uh, um, uh, developed as well, uh, close relations and close working relations with those Brotherhood of Teamster officials who were breaking a bit from, from Tobin and his, and his, and his, sort of tepid approach to uh, class confrontation. All of this served them very well and put them in the position where they could actually defeat employers and neutralize those elements that were going to hold them back. Yeah, one way in which Trotskyists encouraged an expansion of class struggle was among women, especially wives and partners of the working men. While they were often relegated to these more traditional feminine roles, it did have some serious benefits, not only putting a lot more hands on deck to help manage strike action, but also expanding political consciousness as well, getting people to see strike action in the context of broader social struggle. Could you talk about the involvement of women and families that was cultivated here? 
Yeah, I mean, one thing the Trotskyists did, and Cannon was central to this, but Carl Skoglund, one of the leaders of, of, of the strike, who'd been on the ground for a long time working in the working in the trucking and coal sectors. One thing they did in 1934 uh, was encourage the formation of a ladies or a women's auxiliary. Uh, the wives of tr- leading Trotskyist members played a central and decisive role in this, but so too uh, did the wives of some of the more conservative uh, trade union figures. Uh, and what the, women, the, the formation of the women's auxiliary did was uh, encourage women to be actively involved in a struggle rather than isolated in the home, uh, to be out, uh, not just on picket lines, although they were there, but to, be, but to come to mass meetings, which were held in the, the large union headquarters almost nightly during the strikes. Um, these women would go to other unions uh, to speak uh, to union men, uh, they developed uh, a layer of spokeswomen who could uh, actually break out of the tendency for women to be reluctant to speak in public and before crowds. Um, these women uh, sold and uh, the uh, um, daily newspaper that the Trotsky set up, the organizer, they mobilized tag days. That's where they would have, you know, tin cans and walk around the streets and and, and get contributions to keep the strike going. They played vital roles in the, in the commissary in feeding workers um, uh, during the strike. And you're talking about thousands of workers and, and their families who would then come to the union headquarters to get meals and sustenance. Um, they would talk, these women would talk unionism among, uh, their, you know, their, 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 uh, in their neighborhoods and among, you know, milkmen who delivered milk to their doors, etc. Um, and above all, by involving the women in the struggle, uh, the Trotskyists knew that uh, they would uh, they would strike a blow against the possibility, which was always there during prolonged strikes, that women would be a force. Uh, in essence, pressuring husbands to go back to work because of the, the difficulties that strikes posed uh, for, you know, for domestic and family life. So the combination of building uh, um, a contingent of women who were active public supporters of the strike, extending uh, support for the strike into working class neighborhoods and households, and supporting families uh, you know, through what went on at the union headquarters. Um, uh, this was central to the longevity of the strike, and it made the strike a community action, not just a workplace battle. It made the strike into something that was central to everyday life on all of its levels, rather than merely uh, a, you know, a, an event happening uh, at the point of production and distribution. Another strike was started May 15 at 11.30 p.m. And while the first few days were quiet, the city felt the impacts with the striking truckers managing to shut down huge portions of business activity. As in February, a combination of tactical coordination and military-like discipline 
among strikers demonstrated just how essential these truckers were to the city. Could you tell us about these first couple days and how these striking truckers were able to exercise such a massive impact on the city? Yeah, it, it, the, the, the February strike had been small and quick, and the bosses had not been required, in some senses, to give up so much that they were resolute in opposing uh, the workers. And they needed that coal to go uh, to, uh, um, you know, to, to homes. The May strike had a different tone it had not been organized by a small group of workers, but in fact had been called through meetings, mass meetings of significantly larger, uh, you know, whereas the strike in, in February had been, you know, conducted on the basis of meetings of tens of workers. The strike in May was conducted on meetings of hundreds and thousands of workers. Um, and this is when they really, uh, set up the apparatus of a strike that they felt was necessarily going to have to be a protracted one and where the stakes were much higher. This is where they were going to prove that you could actually win collective bargaining rights for workers and union recognition rather than simply, you know, prove that workers could actually battle bo bosses. So they rented a huge building for strike headquarters that was a block long. Um, they had uh, um, a network of, of, uh, of, of uh, dispatchers. Uh, they had developed, uh, you know, uh, close ties with uh, some women workers who worked inside of, you know, employers association firms who were reporting to them. They had, dispatchers who were sending out uh, um, flying pickets, uh, trucks that would go throughout, you know, Minneapolis and block uh, uh, um, uh, uh, strike-breaking strike breaking, uh, uh, activity. Um, they had, uh, as I said, a, a commissary set up, staffed by the Women's Auxiliary, a hospital set up uh, where, where a local doctor and some nurses were on duty. Um, and they were uh, prepared uh, for almost any eventuality. Um, in this, they, uh, they laid the seeds for the strike of truckers being not just a strike of one sector of workers, but a strike that actually polarized the entire city. That, you know, you had tens of thousands of people supporting the strike versus those who were opposing it. The strike became then, uh, you know, a, it was more and more approaching a general strike. I mean, a general strike was never really called. A general strike was never really called for by the Trotskyists, but more and more unions were actually supporting the strike. More and more unions were saying, we will go on strike. We will take holidays to support you. Um, and, uh, it really took on the, uh, the um, the air of a uh, of a sort of mat of one of Rosa of Rosa Luxemburg's kind of mass strike um, involving the entire community. It was impossible to sort of get around that. Yeah, speaking to that polarization, the response by the ruling class of Minneapolis was intense. 
including requests for more police and armed forces to control the strikers, lots of arrests, and even deputizing local citizens. Clashes came to a head at Tribune Alley, where police and their deputies ambushed some striking workers, which dramatically shifted the tone and mood throughout the city. Could you tell us what happened at Tribune Alley and the effect it had throughout the rest of the city? Yeah, the the Tribune Alley um, uh, um, event was a, a sort of galvanizing moment uh, for the strikers in the sense that um, in some senses, because it was a community event, the strike, and because many of the police were, uh, you know, came from the community, uh, the strike, the strikers had a, a sense that, you know, there would be limits to what the police were capable of doing. Um, the Tribune Alley, of, uh, Valley, Alley event, it also involved women. Um, and it, it reflected the extent to which the local police forces and the Citizens Alliance were, were prepared to go. There was a dispatcher who had clearly been sent into the strike uh, by either the Citizens uh, Alliance or the police. It's kind of unknown. Anyway, he was dispatching uh, trucks to go to various locales. Uh, and uh, he, at one point, on the, it was in the evening, he said, okay, uh, we need a truck to be sent to uh, uh, Tribune Alley, which is where um, newspapers would have been distributed from. Uh, and he said, some of you women go on this. We can use you down there too. So some women jumped on the, uh, um, uh, on the, uh, on the truck and they took, and they, and they went down to the Tribune Alley, which turned out to be uh, a kind of an alleyway that was a cul-de-sac. And it was clearly that this dispatcher had been told to send people into what was a trap. Uh, and, uh, the uh, they were uh, uh, mercilessly uh, attacked and beaten, uh, and many uh, workers were injured. Had to go back to the commissary, including uh, some women. Um, this infuriated the strikers, um, who uh, from that point on decided that, uh, you know, they, they, this was a, a clear lesson that no holds were barred, that strikers would be beaten by constituted elements of constituted authority, and they had to fight back. Now, the Trotskyists had to hold workers back at the headquarters from going out and wreaking, you know, uh, uh, retribution on the police and on, on others. Um, but they were... Uh, preparing. Uh, they prepared, you know, rubber hosing filled with sand and, and uh, uh, um, sort of blackjack type thing, weapons. And they were, the workers were incredibly angry at what had happened. And uh, that would lead into what we may discuss next, which was the Battle of Deputies Run. Yeah. So off of that, tensions in the city would continue to build, culminating uh, in another fight on May 22, the Battle of Deputies run, as some would call it. You note that there are some varying accounts, but could you tell us about what happened here? Well, 
both sides were now prepared for conflict. Uh, the police had actually deputized uh, a number of uh, um, anti-strike supporters. Um, call it some were college youths, some were leading citizens, uh, um, some were you know uh, young. Uh, um, sort of bourgeois types out for a lark. But a number of these people were, uh, um, you know, deputized and were, they were called specials. And they would gather uh, at various flashpoints of the struggle, which, in, which the key one was the market, the, the central market where produce was distributed and where trucks came in and went out. Uh, this, was, this would be a, a, a central area uh, where strike uh, picket lines would take place and where strike confrontations would take place. And uh, the, at the, what was called the Battle of Deputies Run, um, the strikers who were, as I said, angered and who now went uh, into, the, into the market uh, on, the, on the morning of uh, the Battle of Deputies Run, uh, um, they were prepared to, to, to fight. Uh, and many of the, uh, um, the special deputies were there thinking that, you know, this would just be another repeat of the uh, tribunale events where people would, would come in and would be routed by, you know, in physically, by physical violence. Well, what happened was that, you know, uh, um, they came in, the, the masses of people gathered at the Battle of Deputies Run. And it was known that there was going to be a confrontation. There were even uh, newsreel crews there who were making newsreels for, uh, the, to be shown in uh, theaters, short clips. Um, and as a, uh, uh, an attempt was made to load, uh, I think, a crate of tomatoes or something onto a truck, one of the strikers seized it through it through through it through a window, uh, and all hell broke loose. Now the 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 issue here was that the police, knowing they were now outnumbered, this was a very different situation that happened at the you know the tribunale event where the police outnumbered the strikers and it, you know and and basically ambushed them. The police basically took to their heels. The special deputies were left. And were and to battle with the strikers, and the strikers routed them. The strikers uh, simply uh, drove them into retreat. I think you know most of the special deputies had no real idea of what was going to happen, and no real idea of how to fight. Some of them, you know, were wearing polo hats, which the strikers uh, took as as prizes back to the headquarters. Some of them, you know, thought it was you know they were out for for a bit of a, a jaunt and wore their, you know, uh, their cleats. Well, the problem with wearing cleats, uh, as one of these figures did, was that as you try to run on cobblestones, which was what the market uh, thoroughfare was like, cleats don't work very well. Um, he ended up being trampled and killed. And another of the special deputies was also uh, died later of, uh, you know, injuries. He, 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 he experienced during the uh, melee. Um, the 
this, the newsreel clips of this that were shown in theaters across the country played to applause in the theaters because workers had seen picket line skirmishes before time and time again, where they were routed by police. And here was a situation where strikers routed the forces of the anti-strike contingent and the police basically outnumbered, retreated. Um, This was a, a situation in which the fighting seemed to be entirely different than the fighting that was the norm. Workers actually won. And Cannon and others wrote about this and said, you know, what a shot in the arm this was, not only for the local uh, um, uh, workers in, in, in Minneapolis, but for workers nationally who saw that workers could fight back and win rather than simply uh, being, you know, being forced into retreat by the superior kind of armed might of the police and, and the National Guard and other kind of agencies that were often deployed against striking workers. On July 16, yet another strike was called. Uh, This one was largely in response to the strike settlement of May being dragged through bureaucratic mediations as a way of stalling and watering down demands. Could you tell us a bit about how this played out and how it led to workers deciding it was time to strike yet again? Yeah, the the May strike had, had ended not unsuccessfully for the workers, but on something of a, uh, um, an ambiguous note. The ambiguity had in part been orchestrated by the uh, farmer labor governor, Olson, who convinced some of the Trotskyist leadership uh, in, the, in Minneapolis uh, that they could uh, arbitrate a final s- settlement, largely that, that turned on who would be included in the settlement and who would not. Um, The key issue at this point for the Minneapolis strikers was that they wanted all workers in the industry or, or involved in the industry to be involved. Whereas the employers wanted only a narrow, a more narrow understanding of who uh, was actually uh, involved in the settlement that would focus more on truckers they didn't want to include the people who were handling produce, et cetera, in the marketplace. Um, this was left to arbitration, which Cannon and other leaders in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Communist League of America always, uh, you know, told uh, uh, the, the, the Trotskyists in Minneapolis that arbitration would only lead to, you know, obfuscation and, and you know, a muddling of the issue. So, the arbitration that Olson had promised the workers would lead to what they wanted came, of course, to lead not to that end. And there were still very much up in the air who was going to be included. Employers were balking time and time again and refused to kind of recognize the arguments of the of of of, of the of the of the union. So it was necessary to go back on strike again to secure clarification that all workers were to be considered in this and not just a narrow band of them, that all the trucking firms would be considered and not just a narrow band of them. So that's what really led to, uh, um, you know, the uh, 
yet another strike. I mean, it's quite remarkable when you think of it that this it took three strikes and the workers were willing to go on strike three times in one year in order to get what they required and needed. Uh, and this, you know, still during the during a during the Great Depression. So as in May, quiet early days of strike action eventually simmered into a boil on Friday, July 20. When strikers attempted to stop a scab truck from delivering supplies, police opened fire on striking workers, injuring dozens and killing one, Henry, Henry Ness. While in the moment there was some confusion, it quickly became apparent to most people that the police had fired largely unprovoked. While the events lasted only a couple minutes, it would polarize class consciousness throughout the city. The deceased Ness, a war veteran and father of four, becoming a martyr and symbol for many of the cla- for much of the class conflict that was taking place. Could you tell us what happened here and the way it reshaped public consciousness around the strike? Yeah, the 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 events of I think Bloody Friday, as it's called, and 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 still celebrated by the way in in, in Minneapolis, uh, as well as the Battle of Deputies Run, um, the events of that Bloody Friday were that um, essentially the the police and the Citizens Alliance were in in cahoots with one another, and they were basically. Uh, they were willing to create a situation in which clashes took place between police and strikers. They were so they put out the word that some some goods were going to be moved uh, by truck in the marketplace, and the the Trotskyist leadership and the strikers knew that this had to be opposed. Now they were under the impression, as well that clashes like this would not result in, in, the, in the police shooting at workers because that had never happened before. There had been battles in the streets, even the ambush at, 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 you know, in, the, in the tribunale uh, uh, confrontation earlier, which again had been set up by the, by the cops, didn't involve the cops shooting anybody. It involved the cops, you know, basically laying in wait for a truck of, of, of strikers to come and then basically ambushing them and beating them mercilessly. But it didn't involve, you know, uh, guns, shooting. Uh, what happened on Bloody Friday was that once this, the strike headquarters got word that there was a, a, a truck that was going to be moving produce, out of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the marketplace, they determined that they would take a, 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 another truck of strikers and they would actually, you know, use it to block or ram that truck. And if there was a confrontation and physical violence, they were prepared for that, for, if you will, hand-to-hand combat. The problem was that as they, that strike... Uh, as the truck of the strikers barreled in to the locale, the police were ready for them. But the ambush this time was that the police shot. They used guns uh, and uh, shotguns and buckshot. And 
Henry Ness was the one striker. Another striker later died of his injuries too. But Henry Ness was was essentially killed. Well, he was he was shot, and when he was transported to hospital, he died. He, uh, uh, I think, at the hospital, uh, he had time to say some last words of, which were tell the boys not to not to give up. And Ness had been a um, you know a, a a veteran of the strikes. He had been arrested in. Uh, the May strikes, uh, and he was a he was a leading rank and file. He was a leading rank and file figure. Uh, he was killed. Many many other workers were injured, and shot. And the brutality of this uh, that that workers would actually be killed by police ambushing them, shooting them to death on the streets in the midst of this strike, merely galvanized further support for the strike. Uh, it was a massacre and uh, people who saw it, including a young cub reporter named Eric Severide for the, uh, who later became you know, a major journalist, uh, was aghast at what he saw in the hospital when he saw workers brought in uh, to be treated for their wounds. Uh, and Ness's funeral held a few days later there were 40, the whole city closed down and there were 40,000 people uh, amassed at the funeral, which involved a, uh, a union hired airplane that flew over uh, the funeral with a, you know, victory uh, banner uh, flying behind it. Um, and this really, uh, again, as these other battles had done, galvanized more and more people, galvanized more and more of the trade union movement uh, in, in Minneapolis to line up behind the strikers, uh, really pressed and pushed uh, the strike to new levels of resolve. Um, and Ness, Ness's, uh, the place where Ness was shot is still commemorated uh, in Minneapolis to this day. On the day that he was shot, there's uh, flowers placed there and there's a Remember 1934 committee that, that still memorializes Henry Ness as, you know, a fallen martyr to this, to this strike. On July 26, martial law was declared. While the official reason was to restore order to the city, it was implicitly understood that this was a strike-breaking technique. What's more, in the midst of all this, Cannon and Shackman, who'd made their way to Minneapolis, found their hotel raided and both were arrested with unspecified charges and many other organizers found themselves under military or police custody. In the middle of all this is Floyd Olson, who you mentioned earlier, and who you describe as a sort of fair weather populist who turned on the working class at the 11th hour. Could you tell us about these late moves on his part? Yeah, well, Olson was always, you know, balancing an act between the sort of rhetoric of being a friend of the working man and the reality of trying to uh, impose order, uh, keep uh, the strikers uh, in line and support capital. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, a, a, there was an indigenous uh, 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 strike leader, Ray Rainbolt, who met with Olson at one point, And I thought, used a very <laughs> colloquial but appropriate uh, um, kind of description. He, he told Olson that 
he'd better be careful because he was straddling a picket fence and he didn't want to fall, uh, you know, uh, in the middle. He'd hurt himself badly. And this was kind of what constantly what the Trotskyist leadership was was pressing Olson on. Um, and Olson actually declared martial law and in doing so uh, raided the strike headquarters, um, arresting a number of leaders and Cannon and Shackman were arrested. Uh, a number of uh, um, uh, uh, strikers, uh, militant strikers were um, put in a stockade uh, um, and uh, this act was met was met with a barrage of criticism of Olson. He was actually uh, unceremoniously dumped from his position of a, the leadership of a, uh, he had an honorary, I think, uh, position as head of some uh, sort of reform debating uh, farmer labor club in the university and the students there said, we don't want you anymore. You're not a fit uh, leader for us. Um, and more and more workers were, you know, uh, being sort of educated in the obfuscations of this kind of farmer labor politics, this cross-class uh, politics. And they pressed and pressed and and they eventually they, they succeeded in pressuring Olson to actually raid as well the headquarters of the Citizens Alliance. Um, you know, he couldn't claim to be a friend of the working man and, and, and basically shut down the, the trade union, you know, headquarters of the, of the union, uh, but not do anything vis-a-vis -vis the employers. And, and when he raided the employers, uh, you know, association, he, they found documents indicating a kind of, you know, anti-labor kind of conspiratorial uh, project that had been going on with labor spies and people infiltrating unions and all kinds of things like this. So as Olson tried to dance on the head of a pin, uh, you know, uh, sort of situating himself as simultaneously the friend of the working man and the protector of capital, he ended up, uh, you know, constantly trying to, having to, to backtrack. Um, and in that backtracking, uh, many workers came to see farmer labor politics as problematic. And they came to see as well, however, that pressuring state officials uh, to live up to the rhetoric of commitments they had made actually could garner some limited, you know, victories. Um, the key point after this would be that when and an election was 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 pending in which uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was running again for a, a, you know a second term. Uh, as this was happening, and Olson was in fact, you know, a supporter of Roosevelt's nationally, uh, it meant that, you know, there was more and more pressure placed on the federal Roosevelt administration to send in mediators. And that in some senses, Olson was pushed off the, the primary stage of being a major influential figure. He'd gone as far as he could without totally squandering any credibility he would have with workers. Mediations and negotiations dragged along, although speed was aided, as you say, by FDR, whose 1934 campaign didn't want this ongoing strike in a major city hanging over his head. Negotiations were finally brought to a close in late August. 
in closing this chapter, could you tell us about the importance of Minneapolis, particularly to Canon and the CLA's history? Well, I think the closing, you know, the final uh, uh, victory that was achieved in August um, and was 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 achieved because Cannon and others convinced uh, the and the Trotskyist leadership in general convinced the workers time and time again to repudiate attempts to mediate a settlement. They sent, I think it was three federal mediators packing. Uh, one of them was a Catholic priest who, uh, um, you know, one Catholic worker in the audience tore a, his crucifix off his neck and threw it at him as the, uh, as the priest was retreating uh, uh, out the door. Um, they beat these people down because they simply refused to accept the usual kind of ideological posture that we're here to help you. Um, they constantly said, no, you're here. Uh, to help the bosses, and you want a settlement, and we think we can get a settlement in our own in our own ways with our with you know with our strength and with our confrontation, um, and ultimately, uh, those mediators, as they beat a hasty retreat back to Roosevelt's administration, um, uh, gave the message that you know we can't we can't uh, win these people. Um, and that, in effect, uh, mobilized uh, Roosevelt to get, use his power with large financial and industrial uh, capital to put the pressure on the local citizens' alliance to, in fact, recognize the union. There would still be issues of who was to be included and who not. But in the end, there was a, a, a vote taken that was somewhat ambiguous, but that actually did show that the union had the vast support of the large, uh, of the workforces of the large trucking uh, industry. And from that point on, it was kind of a foregone conclusion uh, that the strike would be settled largely in the workers' favor and that any future, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, clashes around who was and who was not in the union would end up being settled in the workers' favor, which is the way it worked out. Um, this was this was of all the strikes in 1934, the most decisive victory for workers and the most resolute in its left-wing uh, repudiation of mediation, uh, arbitration, uh, and other uh, sort of blocks against uh, um, sort of class struggle, the politics of class struggle and its potential to win for workers what they needed. 